This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. Thanks for tuning in on this first Sunday of July. I hope you're staying cool or at least well hydrated today. And I hope you stay tuned. WMRA's Emily Richardson Lorente explores in a two-part report how UVA's medical system and some other places in Virginia are working to provide safe and welcoming medical care to transgender people, something that is often hard for them to find. We've also got some environmental reporting from Virginia Public Radio, specifically a bold approach in Bath County that aims to provide more habitat for songbirds, whose numbers are falling in Virginia, and opponents to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline focusing on environmental and racial justice. But first, the role of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, is getting a lot of attention in the news. New York candidate for the House, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, scored an upset Democratic victory last Tuesday over longtime incumbent Representative Joseph Crowley, in part on a platform of abolishing ICE. She's not the only critic of the federal agency. There have been protests at ICE offices around the country. And on Monday, protesters rallied outside of Harrisonburg's ICE office. WMRA's Calvin Penn was there. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement Field Office in Harrisonburg is all but hidden in plain sight. Drivers along Neff Avenue probably wouldn't notice it until they saw the barbed wire fences. But the office stood out Monday afternoon as protesters held up signs near the entrance calling to abolish the agency, commonly known as ICE. Among the couple dozen protesters were those whose families had passed run-ins with the agency in the area, including 18-year-old Harrisonburg resident Karina Vasquez. I've experienced my nephew being torn apart from my brother and just going through that whole experience, it's really devastating. It was a silent demonstration, save for some testimonials and others banging pots and pans to draw attention to the office. The protesters called for local elected officials to cut support to jails and detention centers targeting undocumented immigrants. Harrisonburg's Boris Ozuna said it's a message that should not be delivered comfortably. So we're gonna continue using compassionate shaming because if you are not shamed, you don't realize that you're doing something wrong. While the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy has largely impacted immigrants at the border, the protest was meant to spread awareness about ICE's presence closer to home. For WMRA News, I'm Calvin Penn. Getting and paying for good health care can be tricky for many of us. For transgender people, it can be an even bigger challenge. But as WMRA's Emily Richardson Lorente found out, the University of Virginia is turning into a kind of hub for transgender health care. Here is her reporting. If I can avoid going to the doctor again, I'm going to avoid going. So. Ja Akande is a lot of things. A native Virginian, a doting husband, a stellar law student, and a proud African-American. He's also transgender. I say I came out twice. Came out at 13 as a lesbian. Came out again at 19 as transgender. I think that second coming out was really hard. Ja is 26 now and living comfortably as a man. But when he first came out as transgender, he was itching to start testosterone injections. But his family's health insurance plan wouldn't cover them. And that was really difficult for me because, you know, at that point when you finally realize, oh my goodness, like I can start trying to live my life as a, as a male, you want to do it. For many transgender people, though not all, hormone therapy is key to transitioning. But that doesn't mean insurance will pay for it. In fact, according to the latest U.S. transgender survey, one quarter of those who sought coverage for hormones in the previous year were denied by their health insurers. Ja eventually switched insurance and began testosterone therapy. You know, I was starting to physically transition um, and grow a beard and, you know, my little voice dropped and everything. Just what he'd hoped. But then he had a bad experience with a nurse. 
a nurse who could not understand why the handsome bearded man in front of her needed the testosterone injection she was giving him. And I said, you know, I'm transgender, so that's what I needed. And she said, trans what? And she said, trans what, while the needle was stuck halfway into my body. And this, Josh says, was a long, thick needle. And she's just like, you know, I didn't sign up for this. And, you know, so it was a very, it was a very visceral reaction from her. Even when there's no overt hostility, medical settings can feel fraught for trans patients. Well, I mean, we're in Virginia. Like, it's, it's kind of 50-50. You don't know what you're going to get if people are going to be receptive or not. Ja is training to be a lawyer, so he says he's confident and comfortable advocating for himself. But like the vast majority of transgender men in the U.S., about 85 percent, he still has a uterus, and so he has to visit the gynecologist for regular checkups. You know, if my wife can't go with me or my sister can't go with me that day, it's just really awkward. So it's not the exam that is hardest for you, it's the fact that you're the only dude sitting in the waiting room. Right. It's the dude sitting in the waiting room or the secretary who's known me since I was 16 is calling me she still. The research is clear. If a trans person doesn't feel welcome or safe at the doctor, they're less likely to go, just like any of us would be. It's really, truly astonishing. I've had patients who were transgender in their 60s and 70s who are coming to the doctor for the first time in 30 years. Catherine Casey is a family doctor at UVA. She's taken a particular interest in transgender patients. She says that although many doctors have the best intentions, trans patients may have good reason to worry. I think their fears are real and legitimate. She points to a study that shows 28 percent of transgender patients had been harassed in medical settings. Nearly one in five had simply been refused care. Two percent were even victims of violence in medical settings. I think that if I had faced some of these things, I wouldn't go to the doctor either. And so Dr. Casey recently helped launch the UVA Medical System's first adult transgender clinic. For one afternoon a month, her office in Crozet will be staffed by trans-friendly psychologists, endocrinologists, nurses, and even receptionists. So far, they've held three clinic days and served a handful of patients each time. One of the things that really struck me was one of those patients drove two and a half hours each way. It really speaks to the need in the state of Virginia in general. With an estimated 34,500 transgender adults in Virginia, Dr. Casey expects demand for clinic appointments to grow quickly. Of course, transgender patients can find some services elsewhere in the region. Hormone therapy, for instance, is available at the Health Brigade and the Planned Parenthood in Richmond, at the Carilion Clinic in Roanoke, and at Augusta Health in Fishersville. But in the last few years, the University of Virginia has emerged as a kind of oasis for transgender patients. It's a lot better now. When Scott Reinheimer joined UVA as the assistant director for LGBTQ student services five years ago, trans students had to travel, sometimes weekly, to D.C. or Maryland for hormone therapy. While being a full-time student at UVA, I mean, I, I, I remember looking at one of the deans and saying, how is that equal access to education? It's not. Since then, the university's student health center has begun offering hormone therapy. That's where Jaakande receives it now. And in 2016, UVA's student and employee health insurance plans both began covering virtually the full range of trans-specific healthcare needs. Counseling services, hormone therapies, top and bottom surgeries, um, we will cover it. And so, I mean, the institution is extremely supportive of transgender students, and we try to let you know that. Of course, for trans kids who aren't attending UVA, the Student Health Center is not an option. But the university's medical center just down the road has a resource for those young people as well. It wasn't around until the fourth grade that I began to first really encounter sadness. That's Dallas Dukar. And around that time, too, starting to dress up in female clothing um, and being so utterly ashamed of it. 
ashamed because she was born a boy, but struggled with her identity. It would be another 14 years before Dallas found her way to the transgender clinic at UVA's Teen and Young Adult Health Center. On most days, the health center is open to any young person with an appointment, but every three months, for two days, it's reserved for transgender youth. Here, they can get all the medical, psychological, and support service referrals they need in a single day, in one safe and welcoming place. I had a patient the other day who knew even at age two or three was saying to his parent, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. Um, wants to play with boys' toys, tries to um, pee standing up, really is identifying very much as a boy. That's Nancy McLaren, an adolescent medicine physician here at the transgender clinic. She says for families of very young children, the doctors here talk first about social transition, not medical. That means changing hairstyles, clothes, names. Then... If the child gets to be 10, 11, or 12 and then says, I don't want to transition, it's all reversible. You can go back and change names again. You can go back and, and change clothing. For moms and dads who fear that this is all just indulging a child's whims and that maybe tough love is in order, Dr. McLaren says, consider the alternative. These kids can get very depressed, very anxious, really struggle then in school, struggle with friends. Much of that sounds familiar to Dallas, who went through puberty as a boy and eventually enrolled at UVA as a young man. She even joined a fraternity. There was a lot of alcohol dependency before transitioning. There was a lot of depression before transitioning. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of depersonalization even. Many transgender teens struggle with mental health problems and substance abuse, and suicide is a huge issue. In fact, in a study from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, 30% of transgender youth reported having made at least one suicide attempt. They are really at risk, and so our job is really to protect them. That's Dr. Christine Salorzano, a pediatric endocrinologist at UVA. She co-founded the transgender clinic with Dr. McLaren and says the kids that come here face a lot of mental health challenges. Bullying, rejection, and fear of being outed all contribute, as does gender dysphoria. What it describes is the feeling of anxiety or sadness uh, or angst from being in the wrong body when you have a gender identity that doesn't match. Children under 18 need to receive an official diagnosis of gender dysphoria from a mental health professional before they can start medication at the clinic. We really don't just jump right in and say, oh, you're here today, we're going to start hormones. That's Dr. McLaren again. We really are, you know, let's get a therapist involved, we'll get that going for you. Um, and I think families appreciate that because it is a thoughtful process. Once a child is diagnosed with gender dysphoria, an endocrinologist can prescribe what are called puberty blockers to delay, for instance, breast development in a transgender boy or facial hair growth in a transgender girl. With the goal of how do we help sort of stop puberty and give the child more time to explore what's going on, and it may in the long run then mean less surgeries further on down the road. Surgery is not generally an option until age 18, but for kids whose dysphoria continues into their teens, gender-affirming hormones are often the next step. That means testosterone for people transitioning to male, and estrogen for people like Dallas, who are transitioning to female. It wasn't the dysphoria that I found, but it was the euphoria. It was finally being able to be seen for the first time in a coffee shop where someone can say, ma'am, here's your coffee. Dr. Solorzano says that every patient's transition is different, but the most frequent response she sees once her patients start gender-affirming hormones is just a sense of relief that they're finally on the path that affirms who they are.
Of course, so much of the care that the staff provides here at the Youth Trans Clinic has nothing to do with medicine. We also help them as far as what needs do they have in schools, for example, how do they manage PE class, um, where do they change. Having treated nearly 200 patients in the years since they first opened the Youth Trans Clinic, Dr. McLaren says many stories end the same way. A lot of parents will end up saying, well, I had a daughter, but my daughter was really unhappy, and now I have a lovely son, and they're happy. Nearly two years after beginning her own transition, Dallas Dukar says she's finally herself, and she has the Youth Trans Clinic to thank in part. I am alive, and I am no longer sad, and I no longer need to drink, and I no longer feel like my mind is ripping out of my body, but instead I can just, I can just breathe. And that, arguably, is what good health care should do for all of us. For WMRA News, I'm Emily Richardson-Lorente. Year after year, scientists report falling numbers of songbirds in Virginia. One likely reason, changes in the places that they like to feed and mate and nest. To provide them with more healthy habitat, the Nature Conservancy is doing something bold, burning large sections of an 18,000-acre forest in western Virginia. Virginia Public Radio's Sandy Hausman went there to learn more. It's a drizzly day in May, just after sunrise, but the rain hasn't kept the Nature Conservancy's Laurel Shabline and Nicole Simmons from driving the winding mountainous roads of Bath County. We have 107 birding plots within this 18,000 acre project, and we're going to one of these plots to do our avian monitoring survey this morning. The idea is to count species and individuals in a 100 meter radius, to figure out whether controlled burns are making a difference. Historically, lightning strikes sparked blazes that cleared the forest floor of debris, making way for new trees and bushes, places favored by certain kinds of birds. As we hike through the underbrush, Shabline explains the difference made by a single controlled burn. If you look on this side, this is a more dense forest where you can't see very far, and that is one kind of forest we need. But then if you look over here, you can see a ton of the sky. You see a shrub layer and a little bit of a mid-layer and some dead trees that are also important. Woodpeckers really like to forage in the dead trees and then any cavity nesters uh, like chickadee or some owl species. Ornithologists are especially worried about golden-winged warblers. They have one of the smallest global populations of any songbird and this part of Virginia is their stronghold. They weren't ever really common, but their numbers were growing in the early 1900s when settlers were coming in and making clearings and starting farmland. And then people were just mowing right up to the forest edge or converting their habitat into fields. They really need small trees adjacent to large forests. So that's why since the 60s, both cerulean and golden-winged warblers have experienced greater than 50 to 70 percent population loss. When we get to the center of a designated plot, Shabline gets out her clipboard and pen while Simmons positions her binoculars. She won't actually see most of the birds she counts, but she will hear them. If the birds are at the very tip-tops of the trees or if they're jumping around in the leaf litter behind dense shrubs, you just wouldn't see them all. Begin. I've been bird A and B, Redstart, Red Iverio, Pee Wee, 
worm-eating warblers. Over a 10-minute period, she'll identify 16 individuals and 14 species. They have different calls, they have different chip notes, they have different songs. One of the things that was really helpful for me, at least starting out, is mnemonics to help you remember some of the things. So we have the chestnut-sided warbler says, please, please, please to meet ya. Carolina Wren, I remember as Germany, Germany, Germany. And the Eastern Tohi with some English advice. He says, drink your tea. In the course of their work, Nicole Simmons and Laurel Shabline will encounter black bears, bobcats, and coyotes. That's always a thrill. But the real excitement comes in reviewing the medium and long-term data they've compiled. We've seen an increase in species since 2011. We've seen an increase in number of individuals. We've seen an increase in diversity. In the mountains of Bath County, I'm Sandy Hausman. Opponents of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline have warned of possible harm to the environment, and they have challenged Dominion's right to take private property for this purpose. Well, now another group is coming forward with a a different claim based on the history of racial discrimination and on environmental justice. And Sandy Hausman has that story. John Laurie grew up on a farm in Buckingham County in a small community founded by freed slaves. He left Union Hill in 1964 to join the Air Force, then settled in Southern California. But he missed the seasons and the land in Central Virginia. I like the creek, the little rolling hills, and also has uh, quite a few springs on the low ground. So the water's good? Water's good, lots of shade. It was so green, so much vegetation. So he bought about 100 acres here, and in 1993, he and his wife Ruby moved back. They built a small brick ranch house and a large garage fenced the land for cattle, and planted fruit trees. They weren't too happy when the neighbors set up a shooting range, but now they have a bigger concern, noise from a compressor station Dominion plans to build nearby, and the prospect of water pollution. They want to run this pipeline 600 miles, tearing up God's earth. How are we going to protect that to keep from polluting the water? Dominion is allowed to use pipes with thinner walls in this, a rural area. That worries Mike Ellerbrock, a professor of agricultural economics at Virginia Tech and a member of the governor's advisory council on environmental justice. Ninety-nine families are within one mile of the compressor station and one mile of the pipeline. And of those 99 families, 85 percent of them are African-American. It's not fair, he says, that low-income people of color should be burdened by this project, subject to noise and air pollution likely to come from the compressor station. The one proposed here is giant, almost seven times larger than your normal gas compressor station, and has the potential to emit many, many tons of some rather nasty chemicals each year. And Lori doubts this would be happening in a middle-class white community. Because they would be more influential, they will have the resources to fight it. As it happens, a prosperous community next door is doing just that. Swami Dayananda sits on the board of Yogaville, a spiritual community of about 250 people at a center that draws 10,000 visitors a year. Obviously, we practice yoga, which includes practice of breathing, and we really, really value 
clean air for our health. And Dayananda shares another fear of an unlikely but possible explosion at the compressor station. We are in the blast zone. Our closest home is about 700 feet, and we do have a school for young children, preschool, which will probably be within about 1,200 feet. She joined John and Ruby Laurie and other area residents in speaking to the Governor's Advisory Council in Buckingham. That group then wrote to Virginia's Water Quality Board and to the Department of Environmental Quality, urging the state to look at over a thousand places where pipelines would cross a river, stream, or wetland, and to report on the damage that might occur there. Next, they'll communicate with the governor, maybe calling for a moratorium on construction. Meanwhile, a group called the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League has filed a civil rights complaint against the Department of Environmental Quality, noting agencies that get federal funds may not discriminate based on race or religion, and asking the EPA to void a water permit that allows pipeline construction to continue. I'm Sandy Hausman. Also last week, another pipeline protester was arrested. A Virginia Tech professor locked herself to a piece of construction equipment to protest the Mountain Valley Pipeline last Thursday morning. Emily Satterwhite, an Appalachian Studies professor at Tech, tied herself to a piece of equipment 20 feet above the ground on Brush Mountain in Montgomery County. Police on cherry pickers cut her free Thursday night. Satterwhite waved to about 30 people gathered near the John Deere excavator as she descended and she was met with cheers. Police jailed Satterwhite after she was checked by rescue workers. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bibb and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. If you're interested in supporting our ability to keep bringing you these kinds of stories and all the news, go to our website, Mouseover News, then click on News and Information Fund. Thanks for your support. Be sure to click like on Facebook at WMRA Public Radio, and you can follow me on Twitter at WMRA News to get the latest on our coverage. In the meantime, you can get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast, the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director and Morning Edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.